Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Sportacast. Evan, we have come a long, long way from when I was a kid and my baseball cards and I used to flip them up against the wall and I did every now and then put it in the spikes. I will. T- I used it as a, as a gum factory. I, I enjoyed the gum no matter how long it stays in that pack. The gum is still good. Uh, I, I never envisioned that we would be talking about baseball cards and collectibles and all other cards from other sports because actually baseball isn't even number one anymore. Like People are collecting ba- basketball cards, right? But as a, as an asset class, an alternative asset class, you know, like nine year old me never would have been like, you know, maybe I ought to keep that Ozzy Smith or Vita blue because this is going to be worth something someday. That's just what I know people did. And they had it in the, in the plastic and kept it for years. I, I, I ruined it. I bent them. I flipped them. I traded them. I probably gave away like the guys who were valuable. I had no idea. I'm like, Oh, you want to give me that backup utility second baseman? Sure. Take my seven all-stars. The funny thing for me, I did feel that the, I used to tell my dad, he laughs about this to this day, that the football cards I was collecting were going to put me through college, which spoiler alert didn't happen. Um, but I actually did believe in, 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 in trading cards as a potential, you know, mushrooming industry. It took a lot longer than I thought it would, but you know, to transition here, we are seeing the, the a white hot collectibles market, particularly around trading cards, but it's a lot more than that. You use the term there, alternate asset classes. That might be the theme of 2021. People are looking for things to invest in that aren't your traditional ETF, aren't your traditional mutual fund. And we're seeing things like Nike shoes. We're seeing trading cards. We're seeing autograph collectibles. All those things are flying through the roof. And Scott, we're seeing investors that are rushing in to capitalize on it as well. Yeah, I'll go back to my youth. I'm like, should I should I hold the Burt Blylevin or should I buy Bitcoin? <laughs> that would have been the uh, the choice I had. Yeah, but we're talking about this because the Churning Group invested forty million dollars uh, into Golden Auctions. Our friend Ken Golden, we talked to him quite a bit, uh, and it's uh, I mean, full of celebrities: Kevin Durant, Mark Cuban, Logan Paul, Bill Simmons. Everybody in on this round. Uh, they took a majority stake, and, and it's all because they see this as a continuing trend and. Um, our friend Darren Ravel put this on Twitter and I was checking this out and I really think it, it perfectly illustrates where we are. He said that he bought a Bumblebee tuna card of Dwayne Johnson at the end of June for less than 800 bucks. Now I will admit, I have no idea what a Bumblebee tuna card of Dwayne Johnson is, but it looks just like a regular old playing card. Fine. So less than 800 bucks at the end of June, he says it is now worth more than 20 thousand dollars doesn't want to part with it but 25x return he's got to he's saying he's going to sell it yeah not so bad for less than a year's worth of uh of valuation there you know when we think about why this is happening i have a few theories scott i'm, I'm curious about yours as well there's certainly a nostalgia aspect to the pandemic i think as people sit inside they're thinking a little bit more about things they used to enjoy when they were younger there were there were not a lot of sports happening in the early part of or mid part of 2020 which I think drove a lot of people to checking out other things, new hobbies. Uh, and as we talked about the, the alternate asset classes, that people are thinking differently about the way they invest their money. And all three of those things have come together to create this. And another one, in addition to the $40 million investment from Churning Group into uh, Golden Auctions, 
Collector's Universe, which is one of these companies that grades cards. Mets billionaire owner Steve Cohen is part of a group with Nat Turner and 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 Hornets uh, minority owner Dan Sunheim. Uh, they paid, I think, six eight hundred and fifty million dollars to take Collector's Universe private in in the past few months. There is so much investing here happening. Not to mention, have you read about Top Shot, the digital collectible company that the of, NBA of, of is? Of course, I've read in? about it. Yeah, I, I still don't fully understand it, but I have read about it. I think it's fascinating this idea that you can create digital highlight packages. Top Shot calls them moments uh, that operate in the same way that a trading card does. In, in that you don't own the the highlight reel, you don't have exclusive a, 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 you don't have exclusive rights to the video in the same way that you don't have exclusive rights to the photo on the trading card. But people are paying $35,000, $50,000, $100,000 in some cases for these moments on blockchain and blockchain, hoping that in the future they could be worth 10 times that. Yeah, and you have to look at the trend here as to why this is all happening. I'm just going to Golden here. January sales at Golden, $36 million, all right? That's better than all of 2019. Hmm. They're on pace for $200 million this year. That would double last year's record. So this has started a while ago. This isn't just like, oh, we're bored and it's covid People are certainly looking at this as long-term in investments. Look at some of this. Jordan rookie card, 738000 Pat Mahomes rookie signed, 861000 the most expensive football card ever sold. I mean, every, every one of these transactions seems to top the list. Scott, what happens first, the Sportico SPAC or the Sportico auction house? Oh, well, since we have, you know, you and some others that probably understand uh, the, the auction house, I, I wonder if we collectively clean out the basements and, and the attics, and what could we come up with? What, what would you have? What would be your best card, you think? So I was probably collecting in the late nine. I bet you I have, certainly I have a lot of Fred Taylor rookie cards, probably some Randy Moss in there. They were the same class, 1998. Anything right in the, in the NFL from 98 to 2003, I would say would be the uh, the prime for for me, but I'm definitely going to go to the storage closet and check them out. There, there might be some. Yeah, why there. why not? Yeah, I mean, Ken Golden started selling cards in 1978. He was 12 years old. That's when he started all this. And, and I won't name names, but a very close friend called me up. Who knows that my son loves hockey and plays hockey, all that. Called him up, and by the way, this is like a sad tale for me, but called me up and said, "Hey, I've got." reams and reams of hockey cards, Gretzky's, Curry's, Grand Fuhrer's. This is obviously a Canadian person. But, you know, the Mike Bossies of the world, that, that, that time period. I've got reams of hockey cards. What do you say? I ship them to you. Jackson, my son, puts them together in a way that they're organized, whatever. We'll sell them. I don't have any use for them. We'll sell them and we'll split it 50-50. That was the offer made approximately six to 10 months ago. When I really don't remember the exact day. This person called me and said, would you believe a card that was worth, you know, what I thought 50 bucks, 100 bucks, not, not six months ago, is now worth $8,000. Oh. And I, of course, did not motivate and say, send the cards along. And at this point, I cannot in good conscience say, yeah, let's remember that, I, that remember idea that you offer? for us to split the money. Right. I can't in good conscience do that. So uh, I, I blew it, but it, it really is amazing the trajectory that this stuff is on. Amazing. Let's transition here, Scott. Major League Baseball today, as we record this, pitchers and catchers are reporting. Always creeps up on me. It always feels like it's happening earlier and earlier. Some big spenders in, in Major League Baseball this year. The, the Dodgers leading that group, unsurprisingly, but with some potential labor turmoil brewing under the surface for after this season when the collective bargaining agreement expires in December. I, I think you were kind there. Yeah, I, labor turmoil. I think we're looking at labor Armageddon. Mm. They, they just cannot seem 
to get on the same page, even negotiating terms for how to play out this COVID shortened season. Um, but everybody's looking at the Dodgers. Of course, they, they won the world series last year, eight straight division titles. Um, you see how much money they spent, uh, in long-term commitments, by the way, you see the money there, that they're, they're out there. The numbers are shocking. Yeah. $518 million in long-term commitments. And that, by the way, on four players, four over $500 million. And that's, uh, including from Mookie Betts, Trevor Bauer, the free agent pitcher, Justin Turner, who's going back. But that's that's a lot of moolah, even for Guggenheim Baseball Management and, uh, you know, Mark Walter, Todd Bowley. That, that's a lot of coin uh, moving out in the future. Our colleague Barry Bloom wrote a story this week about kind of a season preview about who's spending and who isn't. And another number that jumped out to me, the Dodgers payroll, $255 million. It's, it's $45.5 million over the luxury tax threshold. So you pay about 42% on the tax on, on that overage. They're paying just in luxury tax almost $20 million. The Indians' entire payroll is about $36 million, according to, to, to Barry Bloom. So just in luxury tax payments alone, the Dodgers are paying more than half of what entire teams are paying. You mentioned Trevor Bauer. He's getting paid about $34 million this year, I believe. Again, the entire Indians' payroll, $36 million. The inequity in terms of what teams are spending right now is so wide. And I would argue, going back to the point we're talking about, about the about potential labor problems, this is kind of the exact, one of the biggest and maybe even the biggest problem right now is that when the Dodgers are spending $255 million, if I'm the owner of a small team, I won't name one because I don't want to, you know, call attention to a single one. If I'm the owner of a small team- We know who team, they are. Yep. We know who they are. Why am I even bothering to try to compete when I am not going to beat the team that is paying $255 million. So why don't I keep salaries at a bare minimum? I collect a, 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 the luxury tax and, tax and the revenue sharing, and I can actually be profitable operating that way. It's not great for my fans because my team is not going to be good, but that is a way to be both op, uh, to be profitable and continue to reap the rewards of, of the growing franchise valuations. And that is the problem for players. They're, they're seeing the pool of teams that are really committed to trying to win and win World Series getting smaller and smaller, and that's creating a smaller and softer market for players across the board. He is Eben Novi Williams at, no, under, uh, what are you? At Novi underscore Williams on Twitter. I am Scott Soshnick at Soshnick. I'll see how much easier that is on Twitter. Uh, Eben, let me ask you this, though. As I used to ask many people during the NBA labor fights of yesteryear, is this more owner versus player or is this more owner versus owner because you know there are big market teams who are not happy with the situation that you just discussed that some of these other folks just are happy to uh, be at the bottom not spend collect their their revenue sharing collect the luxury tax make some bucks and never field a competitive team or rarely field a competitive team i would argue that this is more owner versus player that that for so long there's been this kind of harmonious balance in baseball where the terms, the contract terms when in your early part of your career, when a team essentially controls your rights are very onerous. You're, you're criminally underpaid if you're a really good player and you're, and you're 22, 23 years old, but you got paid a lot of money on the back end of your career and it typically offset. You were criminally underpaid. You were paid roughly the amount that you should have been paid. And then towards the end of your career, if you were a really good player, you were overpaid and it all came out in the wash. What's happening now with baseball is that as fewer teams are, are paying to compete, there's less money out there for the free agents. And they're realizing, oh, hey, I was criminally underpaid when I was younger. 
I reached the point where I could be a free agent. I was negotiating my own deals and suddenly the, 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 the offsetting big contract isn't there for me anymore. This entire system gets broken. And if you combine that with the way that teams are kind of manipulating the way players get called up so they can control those rights for as long as possible, there's, you know, there's, there's expansion of the luxury tax, the, the, the signing bonuses for amateur players are getting restricted. There's less money at the front end and teams are willing to pay are, are not willing to pay as much on the back end. And that feels like a broken system to me. And I think that's exactly what the players are going to be highlighting. All right, let me look uh, on a macro level here in, in the sport of baseball on the media because we've talked so much about the NFL new deals. They're coming. Uh, we don't know the exact number, but we're expecting two X and up, and the NFL can pretty much uh, put a check down on the table and say, here, I'm going to fill in the number. You sign the check. It's that valuable. We need it. Where is baseball? Um, both on the national scale and teams, of course, reaping on the local level with uh, usually lots of regional sports networks. And that, that business model is changing too. So where, where is baseball in terms of media and its ability to capitalize on what it's got? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and again, there, there was a high-profile uh, negotiations recently for baseball that, that, that went down in scale. They're certainly, you know, they're, they're not going to see the, the growth that the NFL is going to get. And, and yes, the, the regional sports model, Sinclair paid a ton of money for those former Disney RSNs. They haven't really been able to leverage those yet because of the pandemic and, and kind of the transfer process. They're gambling on betting for a bad pun there. Um, I was going to gambling on betting and that, but now I was gonna by say the betting way, on gambling. gambling on betting, but they're doing it with Bally's because the RSNs have been rebranded. But I, sorry. I think, yes. The Bally sports networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a wonderful opportunity for baseball because it's tailor made. You're sitting there, you, know, you got time between pitches, ball, strike, double play, ground ball. Like if I'm betting on an event, I think baseball is great. You can sit there live bet each and every pitch. There are so many sports that can take advantage of we all know it's coming. This is going to be huge. Sports betting is going to be huge. It will drive engagement. Uh, and I think baseball is, is tailor made to take advantage of it. Let's move on, Scott. Last topic here, women's sports. Our colleague Emily Karen uh, broke some news earlier this week about BioSteel signing a partnership with U.S. Soccer. The thing that jumped out to me about this deal, I think you would agree, one of BioSteel's co-founders told Emily, the main driver here for getting this deal done, sure, we're going to be on the sidelines for the men's teams. We're going to be on the sidelines for the youth teams. The main driver here is women's soccer. Yeah, uh, they see the opportunity here uh, it, with women's sports to reach an engaged audience, um, to be inclusive. Um, so clearly BioSteel did this deal with an eye on the women's team. And we know they already have, let's, let's see, let's see some of the athletes in the roster already. Pat Mahomes, DeAndre Hopkins, Connor McDavid, stars, you know, global stars. We know that. But what can they do now adding an, an Alex Morgan, a Megan Rapino? What can they do with that? That was the driver here. And you and I had talked earlier about what's going on at uh, the Sports Innovation Lab. Our friends over there, Josh Walker, Angela Ruggiero, they have something called the Fan Project. And the goal of this recently launched The Fan Project, it's to accelerate investment and coverage of women's sports. But they're not going about it the traditional way of just telling me that there's value here. No, no, no. You have to invest more. There's value. People care. They are actually trying to collect the data that will show, show, don't tell, show the value of women's sports. Who else is on board? WWE and WSL, UFC. 
They've got some powerful partners here. Very interesting later on in the summer when they have collected all this data, gone through it, and then release it to see what they're going to be telling uh, companies like BioSteel that this is why you should be investing in women's sports. The thing that jumped out to me here, Scott, there's been obviously a lot of publication, a lot of coverage of over the the pay equity lawsuit that the women's soccer players filed against U.S. soccer. Part of U.S. soccer's defense, the most successful defense they had was that this was a collectively bargained pay structure that the U.S. women's national team agreed to. But there were other arguments in there, and one of which was that if you look at the commercial value of U.S. soccer's rights, a chunk of that, according to U.S. soccer, the, the vast majority of that came from the men's side. And it's a hard point to argue with because, as you know, they sell them in bundles. You don't just sponsor the men's national team. You sponsor U.S. soccer, which is everything. You don't just buy the TV rights to, to the men's national soccer team. You buy the TV rights to both the youth and the women's side as well. So it was hard to break those out because they were bundled, and U.S. soccer claimed, oh, all of this, majority of this is, is because of the men's side. Now we have a partner, the newest partner for U.S. soccer, coming out and saying directly, oh, the driver here is the women's soccer team. You know, the, the, the majority of the interest here- At least to them, they, can, they think exactly. they can extrapolate value on the corporate side, whether it's partnerships, whether, whether it's diversity and inclusion, they think they have a better vehicle with the women's team. Exactly. And and there's three, if you talk to Angela Ruggiero, the folks over at the Fan Project, which you mentioned, you know, there's three buckets that that people feel like need to catch up to women's sports. One is media coverage, two, sponsorship, three is the investment money. We've seen some really high profile people on the investment side there. Scott, just this week, two presidential daughters, uh, Chelsea Clinton and uh, Jenna Bush Hager invested in the uh, the Washington Spirit the Angel, Angel City uh, FC, the NWSL team out in L.A., has a very, very uh, star-studded cast of investors. Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, recently invested in the North Carolina Courage. Uh, there's a lot of high-profile investment going into women's soccer, and hopefully the, the media coverage and the sponsorship stuff will continue to flow as well. And just in case Esty Portnoy is a listener to the show, and she better be, like I cannot say that or go without saying that she is also an investor in the Washington spirit, of course, Esty for a long time has been Michael Jordan's business manager. So Esty, uh, I'm sure there was some rage filling there as Eben was going through uh, Chelsea and Jenna. But yes, she, she too is an investor. That There are politicians, ex-politicians. It's, a, it's like a who's who of Washington elite. Uh, I'll be very interested to see what kind of business gets done in the luxury suites of the Washington Spirit Games. That's going to be the place to be seen. Scott, before you take us out, I have a quick correction on uh, something we talked about last week. Turns out that uh, I don't know as much about NASCAR as I thought I did. Denny Hamlin. I, did, I thought you said you didn't know all that much about NASCAR. <laughs> I know less, apparently. I said Denny Hamlin was a, was a team member of Bubba Wallace uh, in, in Michael Jordan's team. He is a co-owner of the team Owner. with Michael Jordan, but he is technically driving for a different team. So they are Toyota teammates, but they're not technical NASCAR team teammates, at least not yet until Denny's done with Joe Gibbs racing. Either way, Denny Hamlin, investor in Michael Jordan's team, not a driver on the team quite yet. All right. Well, thank you very much. You are listening to The Sportacast. He is Eben Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick at Soshnick. We are coming at you two times a week right now for Sportacast, which is for the moment, the centerpiece of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network. You can get it wherever you do your downloading.